independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Hey, Green Dreamer, just to give you a heads up, we're going to be taking a brief summer hiatus after reaching episode 260 as we prepare for the launch of our fall season of the show coming to you in September. That said, I will be replaying some of our most profound past episodes throughout the next weeks in case you haven't listened to them yet. And we also have hundreds of conversations in the archive. So definitely take this opportunity to go back to listen to our earlier episodes if you're not entirely caught up. And if you you've listened to more than a few episodes at this point, have learned from the show, and want to support us in continuing the podcast and publishing our fall season of Green Dreamer, I'd love to get your direct support starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. If you've already contributed or are a current patron, I appreciate you so much and thank you for believing in and really valuing this platform. 100 years ago, in the desert state of India and Rajasthan, the Maharaja of that place, the king, he was exposed to a plant which could grow in desert. And he took loads and loads of seeds of this plant in an aircraft and he used to fly. So he just sprinkled these seeds all over the deserted state of Rajasthan. And this tree has taken over, this tree is from South America, and it has taken over as an invasive species. Now, because this tree is thorny and it has spread into the jungles, tigers are getting blind because of the thorns of this tree. Their paws are getting hurt because of the thorns. And because of this, they are not able to prey on the deer. So deer population is exploding, which is further hurting the ecosystem by over-consuming the herbs and not allowing small seedlings of the trees to grow. Our guest today is Shupendu Sharma. He goes by Shubes, and he's an industrial engineer turned reforestation expert. He's the founder of the social enterprise based in New Delhi and Bangalore in India called A Forest, which is committed to bringing back maintenance-free native forests using the renowned Miyawaki method of reforestation. So we're going to discuss the intricacies that go into regenerative reforestation efforts, because it's really not just about planting trees, you know, what trees how, where, what is the historical and cultural context. We've learned before on the show that it's really important to contextualize ecology and biology. So there's a lot in this conversation that reiterates that point as well. And we're also going to talk about how scarcity is largely a human construct when it comes to talking about quote unquote natural resources, because when our ecosystems are functioning as they should, they inherently hold regenerative capacities to recreate abundance. Now, before we dive 
in, I wanted to give you a heads up that there is one small part of the episode where our internet was cutting in and out. So it's a little choppy, but it passes and it was a really profound part. I thought that I didn't want to just cut it out. So I hope you're able to follow along. And if not, then you can go ahead and skip ahead 30 seconds or so to pass that section. But anyway, Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. As an engineer while working at Toyota, I was exposed to a lot of different types of industries. So I used to work in supplier development and supplier development took me to the rubber industry, to the steel industry. And if you look at the process of making any industrial product, you will realize that they are totally dependent on one or the other natural resource. Whether to make steel, you have to mine a mountain or to make a tire, you have to drip the sap out of a rubber tree and convert it into something that will never become that natural resource again. So what the industry is doing, it's converting these natural resources into an irreversible state, which means that the kind of industry we are running today cannot go on forever because the natural resources are finite. So when you are exposed to this and when you are and, and when your eyes get open to the idea that whatever the industry might be, if you are manufacturing something which comes from nature, from the raw material that comes from nature, eventually it's going to end one day because it's a linear system. And then suddenly you get exposed to the system of nature where whether it's a tree or a fruit or anything that nature produces goes back into the soil and becomes raw material again to make more and more of the produces that nature produce. So when you say that we're producing things that are irreversible in their state, what you mean is that they can't be, they can't really return back to the biological cycle of life to continually regenerate new life. Is that what you're referring to? Absolutely true. Exactly the way you said it. If you look at any natural system, because the life force of nature is absent in them, that's the reason why they cannot get into the same state in which they can kind of regenerate or uh, take, take a rebirth. And this is the system, the system of nature. The moment I got exposed to it, it sounded so fascinating that I kind of decided then and there that this is the system I should be working on as an engineer, as an industrialist, or as an entrepreneur. I should be working with the nature rather than against it. And that was the main inspiration why I got into making forests professionally. Exactly the way industry makes product, we make forests, but with the same acumen with which the, the best company would make a car or the best company would make a computer. So mm -hmm. why not make forests? with the same professionalism which, with which, you know, the industry operates. What if we're talking about products that are 100% biodegradable, so they are able to return to that natural cycle? Would that be a way of learning from how natural ecosystems work in our production process? Definitely, that would be a way. However, 
if the infrastructure needed to make those products runs on, let's say, non-renewable energy, it's constructed with the materials which are non-sustainable, like it, it, it could be materials as simple as biodegradable toilet paper. But why not find solutions where you do not have to process the natural materials in a manner to convert them into industrial uh, products? Why can't we use natural products the way they are without processing them? Now, if you look at how ancient civilizations have evolved, they have evolved independent of industry. So you take the most ancient civilizations on the planet, whether Indian civilizations or African or uh, Latin American, uh, Chinese, Japanese, they were deprived of the kind of industry we have today, but still they made it so far. So they are the living proofs that we are not dependent on industrial products, but on natural ecosystems. Right. I wonder if some of this has to do with how how reliant our modern society is on money, that we can collectively make more money if there are more parts to that process, if we have to harvest and then turn that into something else and then turn that into something else and then turn that into something else. Every step of that process can involve human labor. So the more the more processes and the more industrialized, the more steps there are in creating the products that we need for society, the more quote unquote jobs we might have for people, the more work we might have for people and the more money and the more GDP a country might be able to make. That is probably the strongest reason why we have to, why things are going the way. And one of the wrong notions that we have is that growth has insatiable and we have to continue to grow the gdps have to continue to grow as much as we try to add these processes to improve the economy the main reason why we need industrial progress is that the quality of human life should become better is that that we have food on everybody's table we have quality human life dignity of labor and a healthy, happy society. But if you look at the way our lives are changing, it's not happening. So much progress is happening. Why the quality of human life is deteriorating year by year? So we have to work more hard to get the food which we were able to like, five, 10 years ago, maybe five hours weeks work and bring food to our table. It could be even if, and it's only going to increase. So if you look at the natural ecosystems, all the essentials of human life, natural ecosystem may not produce a car or an apartment, <laughs> but the essentials of human life, clean air, fresh water, healthy, nutritious food, they come from forests effortlessly without any inputs. So the input is sunlight, it fresh water that is already in a cycle of you know the clouds and the entire rain cycle so it continues naturally and all we have to do we have to just be in sync with it and all these essentials are going to be provided by us from nature however when we change our natural habitats when we change our natural habitats from an actual village or an actual jungle to a concrete jungle or to a, a village which is so far away from these resources that we become dependent on economy 
because we need to pay for everything else. We need to pay for transportation. We need to buy food, which otherwise would have been just being harvested from the nature or plucked from the trees that grow it without any human intervention. I think a lot of this shows that if we allow natural ecosystems to thrive and do their thing, there's so much abundance out there. So scarcity in a lot of instances, certainly we are over-consuming things, but scarcity is in large part a human construct. Scarcity is definitely a human construct. Today, we see shortages of food in places which are so densely populated that if we do not have a large logistic supply chain, maybe we cannot even have our food supply running. If you look at examples like Dubai, most of the food is imported. If you look at examples like United States, we waste more food in the U.S. than we consume. And this means that either we are so isolated from the places where food actually is produced or, you know, the resources are actually available that we feel there is a scarcity or we waste so much. We waste so much in in the abundance that we have around us that we literally forget the kind of cost that natural ecosystems have to bear to create this kind of fake abundance of food that can be wasted or resources that can be wasted. The climate crisis today is a global threat that we face together. And reforestation, of course, has been promoted as a great solution to drawing down carbon. I don't think there are any strong arguments against this mission to restore and reforest. But once we get into the field, it turns out that there are many different types of reforestation projects, different organizations and entities behind them, as well as their different underlying intentions. So I'm wondering, what are some of the concerning ways of reforestation you've seen practiced today that don't really support the regeneration and biodiversity of life, but might be used as another way just to feed the exploitation for human needs and consumption? Well, there are so many. So I'll give you one example. Uh, There is a project called the Billion Tree Tsunami, which is the number one project in the Bond Challenge where Pakistan is planting a billion trees. And we are working in Pakistan as well. So I am exposed to the the technical part of the project. And there is such a huge scope of improvement in projects like these. They are actually planting Australian eucalyptus in foothills of Himalayas, totally devastating the ecosystem of Himalayas, which is so biodiverse and so pristine. By bringing this tree from Australia, which is an exotic species, it sucks away all the water from the ground and does not allow any other species to grow around it. So what you are doing is you are bringing a tree that is converting a great fertile land, which has the potential to regrow a forest on it if it is just deprived from human intervention. But now by putting in this invasive species, you are creating a bigger challenge for the land and even in spite of planting you are kind of converting into a green jungle i would say or a silent jungle a silent forest similarly we have projects in india where 100 years ago in the desert state of india in rajasthan the maharaja of that place the king he was exposed to a plant which could grow in desert and he took loads and loads of seeds of this plant in an aircraft and he used to fly So he just sprinkled these seeds all over the deserted state of Rajasthan. And this 
tree has taken over this trees from South America and it has taken over as an invasive species. And now it has spread throughout the country, gone into mangroves, converting these mangroves into kind of another desert of this invasive uh, species. Now, because this tree is thorny and it has spread into the jungles, tigers are getting blind because of the thorns of this tree. Wow. Their paws are getting hurt because of the thorns. And because of this, they are not able to prey on the deer. So deer population is exploding, which is further hurting the ecosystem by over-consuming the herbs and not allowing small seedlings of the trees to grow, stopping the forest regeneration and converting a lush, green, dense forest into a grassland and eventually into a, a, a barren land. So it could be as devastating as total collapse of uh, flora and fauna of a region. And there are so many, hundreds of such examples, eucalyptus, juliflora, prosopis juliflora. There is a species called conocarpus ruining Middle East and Pakistan and now also in India. Right. So I feel like a lot of people here, you know, let's plant more trees. And they're like, yes, that's that's a great plan. But if we're not intentional about choosing the species of trees that we plant in a particular eco-region, that can go on to have ripple effects that we might not see or understand personally, but it can be devastating for the existing native species in our bioregions. Yeah, and I know where the key lies. The key is in the history of the place. So if you, like India has some of the scriptures, some of the poems, epics, folklores, belonging thousands of years ago. So if you dig into the history of your particular place, if you are an American, you go to Native American history. If you are in India, if you go to the Indian uh, subcontinent history, we have such great documentation of our native tree species in paintings, in poems, in epics, in, 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 in many cultural things. You know, 5,000-year-old coins from India has the species of trees so clearly shown that you can actually bring the entire lost ecosystem, uh, you can actually revive the entire lost ecosystem just by going a little deeper into the history of your place. So because we have these samples available in all the ancient cultures, it's not that hard to identify and find out what is the right mix of species for your particular place. And if you're lucky, you may even have a national park, a forest close to you where you can go and actually see what are the trees that are growing at that particular place naturally. And those are the species which you should plant, even if you plant a single tree once in your life. have an inkling or an idea of how many of the reforestation projects out there 
really honor, you know, looking to the, the native bioregion to inform what species to plant as opposed to other ones that are just like, let's just plant as many trees as we can. Do you have an idea of whether what you're doing is the norm or whether most people are not aware of being so intentional in this work? That's one of the mission of our company as well, to spread the education about the right technique and also spread the awareness about the right species to be planted. Now, India, where we majorly operate, is home to more than 2,800 species of trees. But if you go to all the afforestation or reforestation projects, you won't find more than 100 species being planted. And that too is such a common mix of species that they really don't respect the local diversity at all. So barring those projects, there are a few projects which we really respect. One is projects run by our company. Definitely we take care of uh, exhaustive surveys of local forests closer to our sites where we learn from. We go back to the history, we validate the information that we would have learned in the forest from the local history of the places. We even speak to tribals. We speak to the people who have been living in, in and close to the jungle for hundreds and thousands of years, and they have the right mix of species available with them. Second is, there are projects in Japan run by Dr. Miyawaki, my guru, uh, his team. There is a brilliant project called the Morino Project. They are planting a 300-kilometer-long strip of forest along the Pacific coast, which was hit by tsunami in 2011. And that project is one of the most authentic projects in the world I have ever seen. And many other projects by Dr. Miyawaki, because they go to an extent that they collect seeds from the forest in year one and then grow the seedlings. So it may take another two years for the seedlings to grow and then plant the seedlings in the third year or fourth year. So that's the kind of level of patience that they have, even when they are so excited about planting trees and making a forest. Whereas mm -hmm. nowadays, you know, if a government decided, okay, we have to plant 100,000 trees, they would just want to get them planted tomorrow, and then they will just plant whatever is available. Right. So you just touched on this, but by now you've been working on reforestation using the Miyawaki method. Can you walk us through this process of the Miyawaki method and contrast that with how reforestation is typically done in the field if this is not the norm? Cool. So I mean, I have been making forests using Miyawaki method since 2009. So it's close to 12 years now. Dr. Miyawaki introduced the methodology in 1974. So it's been 40 years and more than 2000 sites all over the world where he has worked. So we have kind of a cumulative, a collective experience of at least four decades. And what the methodology is also known as it's called potted seedlings method. And what essentially we are doing in Miyawaki method is that we are identifying the potential natural vegetation of a particular place. So potential natural vegetation is the vegetation which nature would grow on any patch of land by itself if it is deprived from human intervention. So the succession of potential natural vegetation happens in a way that First, the grasses are going to come back, then some shrubs, then some perennial shrubs and grasses, then some pioneer tree species, and eventually slow-growing, shade-tolerant trees 
which collectively are also known as climax forest species. Now, once this climax forest is established by nature, it's going to regenerate itself again and again, probably till the next ice age. So what happens in Miyawaki method is you identify the potential natural vegetation, you segregate the climax forest species from that mix of potential natural vegetation, you divide them in few different layers, shrub layer, subtree layer, tree layer, and canopy layer. And then you plant them in form of potted seedlings at a density of three to five seedlings per square meter. You work in the soil in a way that it starts to look like and behave like soil of a natural forest, which means it's soft, it's moist, it's rich in nutrition. We have added a layer to it. We have also started adding microorganisms to the soil so that the dead soil becomes alive again and it has earthworms, it has many more microorganisms that facilitate the growth of this forest ecosystem. We cover the soil with a very thick layer of mulch so that whatever watering happens doesn't evaporate back into the atmosphere and when it when it's very cold, when it freezes outside, the soil can still breathe because the mulch will protect it as a blanket. So this mulch will help the microbes to thrive even when, you know, directly sunlight is reaching the ground. And within two to three years, the forests grow well enough that it can sustain its own moisture because the sunlight won't be able to reach the ground. And all the leaves that fall, they make humus. And this humus-rich forest will feed itself from the nutrition that's generated in the humus. So you do not have to maintain the forest or give any external input to make it flourish and it just thrives on its own and within 10 years it starts to look like a hundred year old natural forest you're really just working with nature as opposed to trying to exert your control over it or trying to control what it looks like so one step as you just mentioned that clarifies this difference is how when the leaves of the trees fall you allow them to stay right there under the tree as ground cover and then eventually decompose into nutrients for the soil and for the tree rather than raking up or blowing away the leaves which feels like common practice in a lot of urban spaces city parks or when people take part in gardening for their own homes. So I guess that's just another extra step that people are doing taking away that source of nutrient for the soil. And then people might later have to add artificial nutrients because we've taken that part away. That's so true. So it's, you know, mulch is like the skin of the earth. So if you shave off the skin of any living organism, they are going to suffer. They are going to struggle. And all the energy will be spent to recover or, or regrow that skin. So just like when our uh, skin gets bruised, we get a layer of uh, blood, we, we get one layer of clotted blood, and that's the protective layer. So similarly, if the vegetation is scraped away from any, any patch of land, the first reaction is grass will, will appear immediately. And grass is like that protective layer that earth regrows because the soil doesn't want to get exposed itself. It always wants to have some vegetation covering it. And the first aid for uh, recovery of the soil is grass. 
And what do we do with this grass? We keep mowing it. We keep mowing it continuously. Whenever the grass grows very tall, we either burn it in national parks and even in our houses, we grow these lawns and try to keep the grass as short as possible. And because of our continuous human intervention, the ecosystem, the, the, the soil or the mother earth will never get a chance to get into the second stage. And the second stage could be herbs, second, third stage could be shrubs, fourth stage could be trees, and the final stage could be a climax forest. But because of our intervention, the planet never reaches that equilibrium of bringing back a climax forest, which will stay forever for up to the next ice age. And because we do not facilitate that, we are always struggling to keep our lawns and uh, gardens maintained. From a previous guest, they mentioned that because of climate change and landscapes having been completely transformed or desertified, a lot of former native species can no longer thrive in that place because the conditions suitable for their growth have been altered. So what is the significance of I guess, searching for native species in the Miyawaki method? And how do you deal with the challenges that come with ecosystems having been changed so much that the local conditions and microclimates and water cycle no longer function as they used to? Yeah, so when we are focused on restoring a complete forest back, we are also creating that microclimate, micro-ecosystem, even at whatever smaller scale we are doing, but we are actually creating that ecosystem that would have existed a few thousand years ago. So irrespective of how much the climate has changed, and to be honest, it has not changed that much that trees cannot adopt themselves to this new climate because trees are extremely, they're super adaptive. One degrees, two degrees, four degrees, these are still not that kind of, I mean, they're still under that variation of temperature which trees face throughout an year. And the maximum effect that can happen on them is maybe their fruiting cycles will change, their flowering cycles will, will change, but that doesn't mean that they won't survive at all. What will not survive is anything that is in isolation. So if we are trying to grow just one species of tree in a monoculture, that may not survive because climate has even a slight change in climate can affect the, the pattern in which the species would have survived a few years ago. However, when you are restoring an entire ecosystem, we have seen examples where just outside our forest, the temperature is 43 degrees Celsius. And just, just three feet away, the, where the forest starts, the temperature on ground is 28 degrees Celsius. So this 14 degrees Celsius difference in temperature, around 58 degrees Fahrenheit difference in temperature caused by the forest is the kind of climate change we need to make in order to get the ecosystem survive. I really do not agree with the argument that the climate has changed so much that we have to change the species which would have been growing there a few hundred years ago because we are not helping the planet either by planting those species which are not the natural native species of that particular geography. If the climate has changed, it is our responsibility to fix it back not that we now try to adopt with this new climate, changing the entire ecosystem for all the 8.4 million species 
that are non-human. Right, because it goes back to there being a lot of ripple effects and potentially unintended consequences. And the initial years of planting any new plant requires more hands-on care. And slowly the idea is they require less and less care and intervention. I'm wondering whether this actually affects the trees' growth and survival rate. So how do trees and plants grow differently when they're planted alone, like separated one by one down a sidewalk in a city, compared to when they're able to exist in a community with other biodiverse native plants, vegetation, trees, and living creatures. So how does having that community influence their growth, survival, and their ability to Mm. continually regenerate themselves rather than requiring constant care from the outside? Oh, yes. I mean, we have seen examples which are absolutely mind-blowing. In one of our projects, what our client did they, we planted a forest and we had some extra seedlings, you know, the buffer quantities. They planted those seedlings just outside our forest, but independently, exactly the way it's been done in avenue plantations in the city. Just within six months, they started to see some extremely dramatic comparisons of growth. So what happens is when the trees are planted independently, they are not able to communicate with each other. They are not able to exchange nutrition with each other. When they are planted close together as a community, their roots get entangled. And if you look at them just below the surface, you will see the entire forest is growing as one single organism. You can call it a group of trees, but if you see it below the surface at their root zone, you will see it's just like an internet. You know, Nobody owns the internet, but everybody uses it. Similarly, Nobody owns this, no single tree owns the entire root network, but everybody, every single tree benefits from it in the forest. And the exchange of nutrition and exchange of information is so very important for these trees to grow as a society and thrive as a society that I cannot emphasize more on it. So when we compare the growth of these trees, 10 times the leaf size we have seen inside the forest versus the same species same tree planted outside independently so the leaf lamina size which is one of the signals which is one of the symbols of uh, health of the tree is was dramatically you know different sizes of trees we see similarly 10 times the growth of of the seedling now when trees are packed close to each other they adopt themselves to different layers and each layer will have its own significance. Each layer will have its own kind of a micro ecosystem within the the forest. However, when trees are planted independently, they do not have any supporting layer to them. So if we have a canopy tree, which has three or four layers growing under it, its bark is protected, its trunk is protected because there is vegetation all around the trunk. However, when a tree is planted independently, the sun will fall directly on the trunk, thus making the trunk dry from the outside. And that's where the entire nervous system of a tree exists. So when that is exposed to sunlight, you know, the tree suffers. When trees are not able to communicate with each other or exchange nutrition, they suffer their uh, ability to compete against each other helps them to grow much taller 
however when they are planted independently there is no competition and there is no there is there is no need for the tree to struggle in order to get more sunlight and grow tall so i have seen extremely two different types of growth patterns in the same species of tree uh, planted independently versus planted in a forest and i can easily say with confidence that planting trees as a community is the way we should be planting them peter wallman a german forester who has written the book called the hidden life of trees says if you see a lone tree in park go and hug it because it's being uh, it's 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 like animal in a zoo versus a wild animal when you see a tree in a forest so as you look to our global crises of continued deforestation and not just deforestation but our lack of efforts to rewild concrete landscapes through the methods that we discussed here or even through the continued not so regenerative ways of maintaining homogenized lawns that require mm-hmm. a lot of work and resources what is your highest hopes now in terms of what we might be able to do to really support our planetary healing there are few things which give me a lot of hope one is this new awareness which is coming up about the native trees and the diverse ecosystem ecology what we have seen in last 10 years since i have started uh, this work is there is a global shift especially with the young generation the 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 millennials you can say or the generation that's coming up that enough of industrial style work has been done and it has fetched us no good now it's the time that somehow we have to go back to our roots and find what is the origin of our culture what is the origin of our ecosystem and what was the factor that has brought us so far because living in cities and being deprived of natural habitats we are stressed we are depressed we are not the kind of happy healthy human being that we should have if we would have been closer to our natural habitats natural ecosystem and this realization is coming to so many people now because they have suffered the effect of industrialization and urbanization that i see a huge shift happening in a way that will by default restore the lost natural ecosystems so if you look at the culture of eating healthy if you look at the culture of eating living and Uh, trying to find sustainability in everything that we do whether it's our clothes it's our electronics it's our uh, mode of transportation slowly we are moving in a direction where respect for nature is going to increase and the kind of devastation destruction that has happened in last so many decades is going to stop sooner or later however it's it's uh, continuing in the developing world and it it needs to be stopped and the reason why it needs to be stopped is because even that we have the methods like the miyawaki method of afforestation that can fix a lost natural ecosystem within some 20 25 years if we lose our old growth natural forests we will not have any references to go and survey and learn about these trees we will not have any references to go and collect the seeds which we can use to bring back a forest on a barren patch of land 
So as much as it is important for us to plant new forests, more important or equally important is the work of saving those last natural ecosystem, whether, you know, the last last remaining European forest, untouched European forest is in Poland now. And Poland, you know, being a country just now developing their economy, there are threats to this last remains of uh, natural European forest. Or similarly, in South America, you see in Brazil, the kind of uh, deforestation happening. So these are, I think, global assets. You cannot say that Brazilian government can take a decision and and, and just, you know, uh, remove the entire forest or Polish government. We have to make sure that, you know, these forests are, they, they, they stay intact. And uh, somewhere we have to just get out of this mindless consumerism of uh, consuming furniture and paper and electronics. And, you know, all that consumption is leading us no happiness, no health. So why do it? And uh, I think a better way and good way of life would be to restore natural ecosystems rather than destroy them. And I can tell you that it gives you a lot of satisfaction and a great meaning of life uh, to live. So it's www.aforest.com to learn more about Shub's work. That's A-F-F-O-R-E-S-T-T dot com. And Shubes, thank you so much for joining us today for this important work that you're doing and for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Thank you, Kameh. It was great, really great talking to you. I would say for all the Green Dreamers, do not wait for any miracle to happen you have to take the first step of getting out, go to a natural forest, try to learn about your natural forest, try to identify the trees, try to identify the natural ecosystem that has always been there on wherever you are living in the world, and then try to replicate it. Unless you go to a forest, unless you learn from a forest, you will really never be able to appreciate the true power that it has. Green Dreamer, if this episode has inspired you, I'd love to have you join us on Patreon at greendreamer.com slash support. Today's feature music is Heart by Endless Field. And I also want to thank our audio engineer, Scott Donnell, our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy, and you, of course, dear listener, for your continued dedication to learning and growing with us. I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Please take good care of yourself and your loved ones during this time, and I will catch you soon in the next episode episode.